The reading is taken from Lamentations chapter 3. In a slight change from the service sheet, we'll begin reading at verse 13. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Good morning. Nice to see you. I want to get one painful thing out of the way quickly. Congratulations, Stuart, on your team's victory yesterday. <laughs> you have bragging rights. I told Risky Living when I was introducing him to Stuart, who is the associate vicar in charge of student, student ministry. Uh, Stuart is insufferable when his team wins. And he's insufferable when they lose. <laughs> but today we, we stand in awe and I'm preaching on finding hope when circumstances are desperate. <laughs> so let, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have resource for us. And we pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, open our ears, that we might receive instruction from you and hope from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So our morning sermon series is looking at different aspects of hope. And so far we've looked at such things as finding hope in God's family, finding hope through God's plan for your life, finding hope when life runs away from you. And today, really, we're, we are looking at a topic, finding hope when the chips are down, when everything seems to be going wrong in life, when life's going pear-shaped, when circumstances are going from bad to worse, what about then? How do you and I hold on to hope or find hope when, frankly, life has become bloody? Well, it can be done. And it, it should be done. But we need to prepare well if we're to be able to do it. Because trials and persecutions and suffering do have a sporting chance, if you like, or an unsporting chance of separating us from the hope we have if we're not adequately prepared and equipped. Jesus warned as much. He stood in front of a large crowd as he was teaching one day, and he tells them a story which we know as the parable of the sower. 
And the climax of the story is a good one, that some people listening would bear fruit for him multitudes of times, yeah, a hundredfold. But tucked within the story, the familiar story you know, the parable of the sower, is a specific warning that one group of people that we're going to hone in on today will, will not bear fruit like that. Let me read you exactly what Jesus said, referring to them. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall quickly away. They're separated from hope. And I've always found it interesting that it's not the persecution or the trial that makes them vulnerable. It's the fact that their roots haven't become established enough. And therefore, when testing comes, they're uprooted. I was in London, living in London, when the great storm of 1986 happened. And um, London woke up to find it being devastated by these hurricane-like winds. And lots of the trees were just lying flattened. Trees that you'd walked past habitually and assumed would have outlived you. Well, evidently they were not going to do so because their roots were inadequate. And we need a strategy to make sure that our roots are adequate. And that's what this sermon's about. It's about how to make sure that we're equipped and can prevail when difficult times come. Now, one strategy that won't work, but I need to mention it because it's probably the default template of most people, is this. Keep calm and carry on. Just keep calm and carry on. You know. um, nut it out. It'll be fine in the end, one way or another. And really that kind of mentality is based on an assumption I think many of us imbibe without knowing it. Which is, let's proceed on the basis that nothing too dire or too testing will come our way. Some of you might remember those of a certain vintage, a Beatles song in which the words went something like this, you've got to admit it's getting better, it's getting better all the time. Then a little voice pipes up, can't get no worse, which rather undermines the optimism. But, but there is an inherited template that we're encouraged to believe in by all that's going on around us, which is, look, for goodness sake, things are getting better. You can expect, surely, a life of material ease, a life that is getting more prosperous, a life of plenty, a, a life in which personal wealth will steadily increase, a life in which disease, illness, pain will gradually disappear and you'll be distanced from it, a life where harmony is spreading, a life where more and more people will become convinced that Jesus is Lord, etc., etc. Well, if that's our perspective, we might duck out of preparing for trial. And sometimes, if you've been following Christ for a while, or you have recently become a Christian, you buy into another alluring perspective, which is something like this. Well, surely, however messed up my life was before I followed Christ, now I belong to him, surely life is going to be easier. As I align my life with him, surely trials are going to recede into the background and I can look forward to less hassles going forward and heaven at the end of a road. Isn't that right? Well, not entirely. 
Because what scriptures tell us is that the pathway that lies ahead for all of us, whether we're believers or not, is challenging and difficult because we live in a very broken world and that's a painful business, whoever you are. And we all experience the knocks that come from that. Suffering, hardship and pain is a familiar lot of God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all in here. And the people of God don't take it in their stride exactly, but they're not surprised by it. And here's the thing. As followers of Christ, we're not exempt from the suffering that comes of living in a broken world. Jesus never said, follow me, and you will never have a challenging circumstance again in your life. He didn't say anything like that. But he does promise abundant life in all circumstances. That's the thing. They lived hopefully ever after would be the heritage of Jesus' followers. And we're going to hone in now on four people and see how they respond to extraordinarily challenging circumstances and try and learn from them patterns of behavior which if we buy into will do a lot better for us than keep calm and carry on. Okay? Now the first example is what not to do. Here's an example of how to bomb when suffering comes your way. An example not to copy. Job's wife. Now by any standards, the events of Job chapter 1 and 2 would have tested anyone to the bone. It's a chapter of extreme trials. A disaster movie like this, made of this. I don't know when a safe time would be to show it on the telly. Let me read you um, just very quickly an extract so you get the flavor of Job chapter 1. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them and they put the servants of a sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burnt up all the sheep and servants and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, for Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on the camels and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. It's not good so far, is it? And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking at the older brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. I think you could say this was a bad hair day with a difference. And how did Job respond? Well, Job worshipped the Lord and he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And there's something incredibly heroic about that response. But the next thing to happen to him is he's walloped with an appalling plague. And scabs form all over his body. We're told from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And he's described as scraping the skin of his sores with the edge of broken pieces of pottery. 
And at that point, his wife gives him the worst pastoral advice anyone has ever given. Some of you here are training for ordination. Do not try this in your exam paper of pastoral care. She just says to him, curse God and die. Now, I think both those pieces of advice are bad. <laughs> curse God and die. And here's what not to do. And in some ways, it's the biggest challenge. Don't give up. Her advice is, give up, why don't you, really? And hope always springs from where you put your trust. Hope is always future-looking. It derives from what is down the road. And what she says is, fold up, give up. There's nothing, no good is going to happen. You can't trust anyone. Jack it in. But the takeaway I want us to get with Job's wife is this. Don't jettison in the dark what you held on to in the light. This is the very hardest thing to do, but it's the essential first step. Don't throw away in the dark what you were holding on to in the light. That's, that's the simple takeaway from Job chapter 1 and 2, okay? Let's move on to example number 2. Now this example comes from the book of Lamentations, which we just had read to us. Lamentations is believed to have been written by Jeremiah, so it's lessons from Jeremiah. This has to be the gloomiest book in the whole of a Bible. It, it is not pleasant reading. But the clue is on the label on the tin. It's called Lamentations. And you lament when things are going really, really badly. And things were going really, really badly. The children of Israel had been captured. They'd been led into captivity by the Babylonians. And their misery was overwhelming. There was a wholesale slaughter of priests, of kings, of princes and commoners alike. We read in this book that mothers were so hungry they were resorting to cannibalism. And in chapter 3, I think, contains one of the bleakest verses that I've ever read. It's when Jeremiah says, I've forgotten what happiness is. I'll read you a little bit of it. I'm the man who's seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He's made my skin and flesh grow old, and he's broken my bones. In verse 13, he's pierced my heart with arrows, and I've become the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long, and I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. And then the message translation, reading from verse 19, paraphrases like this. I'll never forget the trouble, the utter lostness, the taste of ashes, the poison I've swallowed. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting the bottom. But there's one thing I remember, and remembering, I keep a grip on hope. God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love could not have dried up. They've create, they are created new every morning. How great is your faithfulness. I'm sticking with God. I say it over and over. He's all I've got left. 
or a more literal translation, word for word from the Hebrew, from the New Revised Standard Version, from verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'll hope in him. And I'm so grateful that in Scripture, we come face to face with people struggling with titanic suffering. Because that's real. It's not airbrushed out of the path of a disciple. And I'm truly grateful that we're given guidance here of how to hold on to hope. And the Puritans worked very hard at this and wrote a lot about it. And it, it really boils down to this. You need to take yourself in hand. You need to give yourself a good talking to so that you determine what you think rather than let your thoughts run away with you. In verse 21, this I call to mind. I dredged this up from my memory bank. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. And we deliberately train ourselves to turn our eyes away from the situation and focus on the Lord who loves us. This is the absolute kernel of finding hope in troubled times, reminding ourselves of a God whom we trust in. Some years ago, I read a, a book which is um, an easy read by a Spitfire pilot in the Second World War called Geoffrey Wellham. And it's a book called First Light. And he describes how a very young man, he, he joins the Air Force and he's trained to fly his Spitfires. But he describes very vividly what it was like to learn to fly at night and how initially he found it incredibly difficult because he really had to learn to rely on the dials that were in front of him. He had no way by looking out of the window to know how high he was, how low he was, where he was in relation to the horizon or which direction he was going in. All he had to go on was the dials. And there are times when all we have to go on is what scripture tells us about the Lord we trust. And right at the bottom of a pit, that's all that Jeremiah has to go on. What he's learned and experienced about God in the good times and through history. Trusting God in bleak circumstances is a bit like that. And probably all of us will find some impulse to cave in into blind panic. And we need to remind ourselves of this essential first step. Where are we going to look? This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And then digging into a little bit more about what he calls to mind, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Now this is one of the most precious verses in the whole of scripture. Once you know that that word steadfast love is a very precise word. Chesed is the Hebrew word, and it, it means love that will not let you go, cannot let you go. It, I've got a little slide I want to show um, this was an advert that appeared some years ago for superglue. It's a pretty impressive one, isn't it? And you can see um, that there's a car 
stuck to the side of an advertising hoarding just by the power and strength of that glue. And I remember seeing that advert for real and it was so fascinating. But that is what God's love is like for you and for me. He superglued his love to you and to me. And nothing is going to wrench that apart. And when you call that to mind, when you remember that, hope begins to be inflamed. Circumstances might change, but God's love for us is not going to change. And then reading on a little bit further in this chapter, there's just one other point I want to make from this example is that Jeremiah comes up with an extraordinary thing to say. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man to bear the yoke while he's still young. Verse 25. And that is an amazing thing to say. And here's why I think he says it. It's because following God, for us in our day, being Christians, is not like a plant, say, a sunflower, which grows best in the sun and needs to be protected from pests and bugs. If our faith was only formed in fair weather, when the storms come, we'd be bound to falter. Instead, robust, resilient, reliable faith relies on qualities developed in a furnace of affliction and shaped on an anvil. It's refined and it's strengthened. And in fact, scripture tells us painfully honestly that life is going to be one long refining and it will be a painful process. And by and large, and that's because by and large, you don't grow good by sitting still. God is in the changing business and he does it through refining. And one of the reasons it's good to bear this in your youth is because the sooner we discover how faithful God is, the better. Then you're able to see the whole of the rest of your life in the perspective of, I've walked through trials with God and he's been faithful so far. Why should he not be today? Why will he not be tomorrow? That's why in Amazing Grace at him we sing, John Newton was able to say, through many troubles, toils and snares, I have already come. It is grace that see me safe thus far and the Lord will see me home. When you know of God's faithfulness, your trust grows and grows and grows. Well, let's skip forward to my third example, and that's the Apostle Paul. Paul's life is punctuated by hardship, by persecution, and suffering, and yet his writing is also proliferated with hope, isn't it? And joy and praise. How come? Well, in part at least, by the Holy Spirit. And in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to be preaching on the link between the Holy Spirit and hope. And even though I want, don't want to expand that point, I want to mention it this morning, because it's not just sheer grit and determination that gets you through. The Holy Spirit's help empowers us to get through. But it wasn't just the Holy Spirit. It was also the convictions that had settled in Paul's mind about God's goodness. Now, Romans chapter 8, you could see 
as a whole chapter about the hope that God gives us. But I'm just going to plunder two points from it. If you were like to make them the hinges on which the door of hope swings. And the first one is this. Paul has come to see that his present sufferings, and by implication our present sufferings, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's what Paul says. What he's saying here is a wonderful truth. There's a strange alchemy going on. When we're in the middle of enduring suffering, God's at work in us, turning it to his good purpose. It's not that the suffering itself is good. We have to be careful not to say that or to imply it. That isn't true. Suffering isn't good. God is not a masochist. But out of his great power, God is majestically and mysteriously able to turn scars of brokenness into trophies of triumph. That's his prerogative. And it's what he does. And I think we see it best in other people. You, you don't really see this by looking in the mirror. But other people can see it in you. How is it that people become mellow, become gentle, become kind, become forgiving, become patient? Well, I'll tell you how it is. It's as iron sharpens iron that one person sharpens another. You have the rough bits knocked off you. And it, it's painful, but it can be fruitful. And the challenge here is there's no guarantee that suffering will produce this in your life or mine. We, we have the option at any stage, and some people choose it, to turn on God rather than to turn to God. And when that happens, the opposite happens. They become bitter, cranky, unforgiving, and altogether uh, not moving in a godly direction. But that's not what Paul chose. He was convinced that better things awaited him, but even while he was waiting for that, his phrase is this, God is conforming me to the image of his son. God is making me more Christ-like. God is producing holiness in me. And all those concepts are going strangely out of fashion, but they're right at the kernel of what to follow Christ is all about. It's his life work in us. It's what he's hoping for in us day by day by day. And he'll bring it about if we let him. And that is how he uses suffering for his purposes, for good. And when I'm talking about suffering in this context, I think it's important that we face up to the fact I'm not talking about outrageous, brutal suffering, which you might find in the persecution of Christians in various parts of the world, but in every bit real suffering that comes our way, let's say through patiently looking after a relative who's got dementia. Let's say people who sacrifice their envisioned future to look after their grandchildren who are in a mess. Let's say people who live in pain from a perfectly ordinary disease that they have and have to cope with every day. And you could at any time give in to self-pity. You could at any time, as it were, rant at God. But what Paul is saying is, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that if I let God do his work in me, he will change me for good through what I'm living through. 
I was reflecting on this and I was thinking the most Christ-like person that I know who's gentle, kind, resilient and patient and his backstory, which he would very rarely speak about, was enduring years of working in an environment where he was subject to bullying, picked on for his faith, dramatically opposed when he persisted in living a life of integrity. And not a day of it was fun. But he emerged, the most Christ-like person and the most fun person I know. And then, the second hinge I see in Romans 8 is this. Paul was absolutely convinced that whatever came his way by way of suffering and pain and trial, nothing could separate him from that glorious love of Jesus Christ that he'd come to discover. He'd been captured by it. He'd been captivated by it. And he'd come to realize that the love of God for him was immense. And you know, I, I, time will not allow me to dwell on that but it's true same for you and for me you know God loved us when we were miles away from him and when you've discovered his love in your finest moments you know it's kind of whoopee-doo hot dog day this is brill or however you want to express it and once you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus well then nothing else is a threat and hope cannot be snatched away from you and, and Paul puts it majestically when he says, um, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, a sword? No, he says, I'm convinced in all of these things we're more than conquerors. And I'm convinced neither death, life, or angels, or demons, or things in the present or the future, or powers, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus. And when you hold on to that hope in the face of everything, including death, well, hope can never be snatched away. And it seems to me that as death is a certainty to come our way at some time or other, this is an essential skill to connect with. Well, lastly, finally, very briefly, the example of Jesus himself. And I just refer to one verse in Hebrews where we're given a clue as to how he persevered. When we're told that when facing the cross, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He saw through the cross to what was to happen the other side. And at that point, he had to exercise trust I think a good illustration of this is, I don't know when the last time, if ever, you've been to a circus and you've seen trapeze artists working. But I can remember doing that. And you see them high up, and part of the act involves one of them letting go and just flying through the air, trusting someone was going to catch them on the other side. And that's what Jesus did as he went to the cross. He, he let go, trusting that the Father would catch him, if you like. And many is the time in suffering that we just let go. We don't understand the situation. We wish that it were not as it is. But we trust that God will redeem it. And that he will catch us the other side of it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
Now, as I come to my conclusion, no one is saying that holding on to hope is a doddle. The writer of the Hebrews begins his famous chapter, seeing as we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And it's my privilege to know as I stand up here and look out at the congregation that there are many people here this morning and you have faithfully made this journey through troubled times. And some are in the middle of it now, bound to be. It's not something we do on our own. We do have the encouragement of company. But we do have the resources of scripture too. We do need to put this in our memory bank. God willing, there are some people here for whom trial and hardship is miles away at the moment. But remember this talk because the points in it will help you on the days you have to endure. It's bound to be that some here this morning are in the middle of a challenge. And I would say to you, we're here for you. We're here for you on a Sunday, but we're here for you midweek. Small groups are the place where people can be cared for and nurtured and helped along when life is tough. That's why if one reason amongst many, why if you're not yet in a small group, you're cutting yourself off from some of God's blessing. But also, paradoxically, when we come together to praise God in worship, I believe that's enormously strengthening. Even if it's something that we do through gritted teeth, it's saying to ourselves and to the Lord and to the enemy, as a matter of fact, but this I bring to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the scriptures which teach us and strengthen us and encourage us. And we pray, Lord, that you would indeed come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Enable us to trust you. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to hold on to you. And increase our faith that you will always be holding on to us. In Jesus' name, amen.